due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Albert Snyder wove across the living room through the crowd of party guests until he found an unoccupied chair to sit in. He listened to the excitement around him, the laughing, the music, and the card playing, but he had no desire to join in on the fun. He was having enough trouble trying to keep the room from spinning. He hadn't intended on getting drunk. He was trying to be careful. Last time he drank like this, he'd woken up the next morning to find his wallet missing. That was the problem with the sort of parties his wife dragged him to. They always led to trouble. Albert grunted as his wife Ruth pushed yet another glass of bootleg whiskey into his hands. He noticed she didn't have a drink of her own, which was strange. It wasn't like Ruth to stay sober when everyone else was indulging. He tried to push the drink away, but Ruth insisted. She said she wasn't feeling well and Albert might as well have her share. As he molded over, Ruth smiled, stroked his head and called him her baby lamb. Albert balked. She never acted this way at home. He sensed she was hiding something, but it was late and his mind was swimming. He decided to let it go and take the drink. Women were inscrutable, his wife most of all. It was a waste of time trying to figure her out. Whatever she was scheming, he'd worry about it tomorrow. As Albert drank deeply, a triumphant smirk crossed Ruth's face. Again, it nagged him. She had something on her mind, and Albert felt certain it was nothing good. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're covering the unhappy marriage between Ruth and Albert Snyder. Ruth loved bright lights, dancing, and crowds. She was perfectly suited for the revelry of the Roaring Twenties. Unfortunately, she married a man who rarely wanted to do anything more than sit at home and smoke a pipe. 
By 1925, Ruth was looking for respite from the tedium of her marriage, and she found it in a handsome salesman named Henry Judd Gray. Next week, we'll explore how things went downhill, culminating in a 1927 crime that created a media circus, inspired books and movies, and led to one of the most famous tabloid photos in American history. Ruth Snyder was born Mamie Ruth Brown in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, New York. Her birth date is sometimes listed as 1891, but other records indicate she was born in 1895. It's possible she later lied about her age when reporting to the New York State Census, but for this episode, the stated ages will be based on the 1895 birth date. Ruth's parents, Harry and Josephine Brown, were working-class immigrants from Norway and Sweden. Her father was a carpenter and her mother was a nurse. Ruth's early childhood was plagued by health issues. She had intestinal surgery at the age of six and then a botched appendectomy at age 12. The surgery caused her so many problems that she had to have a second corrective operation when she was 18. These health issues may have left Ruth with lasting psychological scars. Before I continue with Ruth's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to a University of Sussex study, chronic childhood illness is linked to mental health problems later in life. Psychologist and senior researcher Dr. Daria Gesina stated, our results show that childhood chronic physical illness was significantly associated with adult depression in the total sample of more than 45,000 participants we studied. Despite her health complications, Ruth attended school until the eighth grade. Some stories suggest that she dropped out to look for work. It may be that her family needed the extra income, but other reports offer a different reason for her early departure from education. According to the newspaper, The American, Ruth had an affair with a teacher when she was 15 years old. She then became jealous of another female student in the teacher's class. The tension between the two girls eventually erupted into a physical fight on campus. If this account is true, Ruth may have been expelled or she may have left school to avoid embarrassment in the wake of the scandal. After dropping out, Ruth took a job as an operator for the New York Telephone Company. She had been working there a few years, when one morning in 1914, she placed a call from the office of a man named Albert Schneider. But the call was apparently misdirected. Albert berated Ruth for the mistake and hung up the phone. But he perhaps felt bad about losing his temper. He called Ruth back a few moments later to apologize. The pair talked for a few minutes and then Albert invited Ruth to come and visit him. He said he might have a job opportunity for her. Albert Schneider must have been an impressive man to Ruth. He was 32 years old, 13 years older than Ruth, and he made a good living as an art editor with Motorboating Magazine. He was well-educated and cultured, 
having graduated from the Pratt Institute with a degree in art and graphic design. After they met, he said he could help her get a secretarial job at the magazine office. This was a step up from the New York telephone company, and Ruth happily accepted. Once they began working in the same building, their relationship turned flirtatious. It's not clear why Albert singled Ruth out. Perhaps he was lonely. He had been engaged before, but his fiance had died of pneumonia. Two years later, Albert still kept scrapbooks filled with Jessie's photographs and wore a pen inscribed with her initials. And yet, Albert seemed eager to pursue Ruth. She was, after all, tall, blonde, attractive, and receptive to his advances. That was enough to spark a relationship. Albert took Ruth out to fancy downtown restaurants and shows. Within a few months, around Christmas of 1914, Albert proposed. Ruth declined this first proposal, but continued to go on dates with him. A few months later, on Ruth's birthday, Albert tried again. This time, he brought a diamond ring hidden inside a box of chocolates. Ruth accepted, and four months later, they were married. But not everyone approved of the match. Albert's sister felt she married above her station. We knew none of her friends. She and they were on a different social plane from us. They weren't our kind of people. We only tolerated her for Albert's sake. The couple moved to a house in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Ruth found that once they were married, Albert was much less interested in fancy Manhattan dinners or theater outings. He preferred staying close to home, working in his garden or on home improvement projects in his workshop. When he did go out, it was usually on his boat, a cabin cruiser named Jesse G, after his late fiance. The name bothered Ruth for obvious reasons, and she eventually persuaded him to rename the boat Ruth. It was far from the only difficulty the couple encountered while settling into married life. Ruth loved animals and wanted to fill the house with pets, but when she got a dog, Albert made her get rid of it. She was also eager to have a family, whereas Albert had no interest in children. Ruth reportedly suffered from a condition that made it difficult to get pregnant. However, she secretly sought out medical treatment to correct the problem. She evidently neglected to tell Albert of her plans to have children, and when she became pregnant in 1916, he was furious. He was even more upset when she gave birth to a girl instead of a boy on November 15, 1917. Ruth was delighted with their daughter, whom they named Lorraine, but 35-year-old Albert seemed increasingly moody and temperamental as he adjusted to his new role as a father. Nevertheless, with a new baby in their lives, the couple relocated to a bigger house in Queens Village. When Ruth's father died in 1920, her mother, whom they called Granny Brown, moved into the Snyder spare bedroom to help Ruth take care of little Lorraine. Albert continued to earn a good living at Motor Boating Magazine, providing his family with a comfortable life. But the couple argued frequently. 
Granny Brown later said that Albert was too glum for her energetic and fun-loving daughter. He complained that Ruth wasn't domestic enough, she was too wild. Ruth, meanwhile, didn't think her tastes were wild, they were just modern. By the early 1920s, many urban women were embracing the flapper lifestyle, and Ruth didn't want to miss out. Ruth's neighbors said that she eagerly made friends all around her neighborhood. As one newspaper described, Ruth went to bridge parties and was happy and carefree. She drank a little, smoked a little, danced a little. People said, Ruth's lots of fun, let's have her over. And they added, but Albert's kind of a stick. Albert wasn't just gloomy, he could be bad-tempered and vicious. According to one account, when a neighborhood boy hit a baseball through the Snyder's window, Albert chased the boy home and beat the child with his fists. On other occasions, Albert screamed at his daughter Lorraine when she behaved as a typical toddler. He also complained about Ruth's spending habits and frequently compared her unfavorably to his late fiance, Jesse. He even hung the dead woman's photograph on their bedroom wall. It didn't take long after Lorraine's birth for the affection between Ruth and Albert to completely evaporate. They shared the same house, but lived separate lives. Their incompatibility seemed insurmountable and both grew bitter as the years went on. Ruth lay in bed and stared vacantly at the ceiling. She tried to find the will to get up and make breakfast, but it wouldn't come. She heard Albert in the yard outside, working on one of his projects. Perhaps he was building a birdbath for the garden or mending an old cabinet. It didn't really matter, as long as it kept him busy and away from her. She hoped he spent the whole day out there. Ruth let a wave of self-pity wash over her. Every day brought a new round of unpleasantness. There was hardly any joy in life. It seemed to Ruth a terrible punishment, this dull existence, empty of pleasure. She felt certain that she had never done anything to deserve this, unless marrying the wrong man counted as a sin. But whatever she had done wrong, she was apparently condemned to pay the price for the rest of her life, or the rest of Albert's. The thought made her want to give up and die right there in bed. In 1925, after 10 years of marriage, 30-year-old Ruth was miserable. But if she wanted alimony and custody of her daughter, Ruth had to prove depraved cruelty or adultery on Albert's part. She had no evidence he was having an affair, and his behavior didn't meet the standards for cruelty at the time. She felt she had few options, so she put up with Albert and tried to look for happiness elsewhere. In June of 1925, she finally found it. Sometime that month, Ruth went to Manhattan to have lunch with some friends, including a salesman named Harry Folsom. 
While they dined, a friend of Harry's walked into the restaurant. His name was Judd Gray. When Harry spotted Judd, he called him over to join the party. The group ate and drank into the afternoon. As the hours passed, Ruth's friends drifted out. Soon, the only people left at the table were Ruth and Judd. He eventually had to leave to get back to work, but he made it clear that he hoped to see Ruth again. Ruth thought back on her unsatisfying life in Queen's Village and decided she had nothing to lose in taking him up on his invitation. When we return, Ruth's marriage deteriorates even further as she and Judd embark on a secret affair. Now, back to the story. In 1925, 30-year-old Ruth Snyder felt trapped in an unhappy marriage to 43-year-old Albert Snyder. She was searching for a distraction when she met 33-year-old Henry Judd Gray that summer. The pair hit it off immediately. Like Ruth, Judd was outgoing and sociable. But also like Ruth, Judd had been married 10 years. He lived with his wife, Isabel, and their nine-year-old daughter in Orange, New Jersey, though he didn't spend a lot of time at home. He worked as a traveling salesman for Benjamin and Jones Company, an upscale lingerie and undergarment purveyor. Even when he wasn't traveling, his job often required him to spend late nights out entertaining clients at restaurants and nightclubs. Judd enjoyed this part of the job, but his wife was less enthusiastic. Isabel seemed content to limit their socializing to playing bridge or going to country club events. Judd's flashy lifestyle was at odds with his wife's more reserved nature. So when Judd met Ruth, he found someone more his speed. Soon after their first lunch together, Judd went back out on the road and Ruth went with her family on a summer holiday to Shelter Island. But it wasn't long before the two reconnected. According to Ruth, the family vacation to Shelter Island was a disaster. She said Albert's bad temper flared and he got into a fistfight with a friend. Embarrassed, Ruth decided to cut the trip short and return to their home in Queens. She was furious at Albert for ruining the holiday and was more eager than ever to get away from him. In August, she attended a party held by her friend, Harry Folsom, and found Judd Gray also in attendance. He was back from his sales trip. Ruth was pleased to see him and they spent the evening chatting. Later, as they strolled toward Penn Station, Judd invited her to stop at his office. She was in no rush to get home to Albert, so she agreed. Alone in Judd's office, he offered to give her a corset from his sales line. According to Judd, Ruth slid out of her dress so that she could try the corset on. As he helped her lace up the garment, he noticed her shoulders had been sunburned from her trip to the beach. He offered some lotion to soothe them. The gesture seemed very romantic to Ruth, who was still seething about her husband's loudish and sensitive behavior. That night, she and Judd had sex. It was the beginning of a passionate love affair.
From then on, they took every opportunity to see each other. During his busiest sales months, Judd frequently booked a room at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel so that he could entertain clients in the city without having to return to New Jersey in the early hours of the morning. Soon, this hotel room became a secret love nest for Triss with Ruth. The pair spent long afternoons having sex, followed by outings to the theater or to rooftop garden parties. When describing the details of their encounters, Judd later said, I don't remember very much about it. I was very intoxicated. When Judd left town for extended periods to go on sales trips, he always left his schedule with Ruth. They exchanged phone calls and letters during his time away, sometimes multiple letters a day. Judd addressed these letters to a Mrs. Jane Gray. Ruth gave her postman specific instructions to make sure every letter containing this address went straight to her and not her husband. She unabashedly told the postman that she didn't want her husband to see the letters because they were from her boyfriend. It wasn't only the postman who knew about the relationship. Beyond hiding the affair from Albert, Ruth didn't seem ashamed of it at all. She introduced Judd to her friends, her mother, and even her daughter. Seven-year-old Lorraine referred to him as Uncle Judd. She later remembered him as the man who gave her candy and who gave her mother nice presents, a contrast from her gloomy father. Ruth seemed to have little trouble fitting the affair into her life. At times, if Ruth's mother was not available to watch Lorraine, she simply brought the girl with her to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. While she and Judd were in the room together, Lorraine amused herself by riding the elevators up and down. Ruth's mother accepted the affair, although she occasionally admonished her daughter that it didn't look right. But Ruth wasn't worried about what other people thought. Judd made her happy, and she was thrilled to celebrate her new love. Ruth skipped giddily down the street toward the train station. She pictured the evening ahead of her, chilled drinks and a cabaret with Judd by her side the whole night. She practically felt tipsy already. What a difference a nice young man could make. She could hardly believe her luck. She finally had the life she was always meant to have. Why shouldn't she have fun? She was young and filled with energy. It would be a shame to waste all that on an old crab like her husband, who had never really appreciated her. But it wasn't just about the good time. Compared to Albert, Judd was a dream, a gentleman. He never shouted at her or lost his temper. He let her talk about all her problems, and he actually listened. She thought it was the most wonderful feeling in the world, being cared for and loved and treated like she mattered. If only she could have that every day. Maybe someday she would, but for now, she treasured those sporadic nights. The music, the caresses, the laughter, and trying to forget the dull life waiting for her when the fun was over. Ruth enjoyed confiding in Judd. In one letter, she wrote to him about her cousin, Ethel Anderson, who was also unhappily married. 
Ethel was trying to bribe young women into flirting with her husband. She wanted to entrap him into having an affair so she could use the evidence of adultery to procure an easy divorce. Ruth seemed delighted by her cousin's ingenuity. As her affair with Judd progressed, she put more and more thought into how she might escape her own marriage. Meanwhile, her relationship with Albert remained deeply strained. They often argued about money. Financial stress can be a common source of marital strain. A study by SunTrust Bank found that 35% of participants named money as the primary trouble spot with their partner. But the Snyders also argued about Ruth staying out late and about how to raise their daughter. Ruth wanted to send eight-year-old Lorraine to a convent boarding school, and she even briefly got a door-to-door sales job with a dental supply company to earn money for the tuition. But Albert wanted to keep Lorraine at home and refused to consider the idea of boarding school. Ruth was tired of it. She couldn't stop thinking about how much easier it would be if she were on her own. She wanted the freedom to live her life as she pleased. She was determined to have that freedom, no matter what. One afternoon in November of 1925, Ruth heard a knock at the front door and discovered an insurance salesman on her front stoop. Ruth was always friendly with salesmen and invited him inside. She said she was interested in buying insurance, but asked the salesman to come back later and give his pitch to her husband. She also had another request. She asked the salesman if he could get her husband to sign a blank policy form. She wasn't sure how much they would want the policy to cover. She planned to fill in the details of the policy later once they came to an agreement on the final amount. The salesman was happy to oblige. He returned later in the week and convinced Albert to sign a blank policy application. The next day, Ruth called the salesman to let him know that Albert had made a decision. He wanted to purchase a $50,000 policy. It contained an indemnity clause that paid out double in the event of a death by misadventure. Ruth was listed as the beneficiary. With the insurance policy in place, Ruth stood to gain as much as $100,000 in the event of her husband's accidental death. The amount would be worth nearly $1.5 million today. Albert likely had no idea Ruth had taken out such a large policy on his life. Just as she had done with Judd's love letters, she gave instructions to the postman to hand over any envelopes from the insurance company directly to her so that Albert wouldn't see them. Ruth paid the premiums on the policy herself, even though the expense cost more than half of the weekly allowance Albert gave her to run the household. She figured the cost would be worth the eventual payout. With the policy in place, Ruth began to think less about how to get a divorce and more about how to become a widow. When we return, Ruth and Judd concoct a deadly plot to get rid of Albert Snyder. Now, back to the story. In late 1925, 30-year-old Ruth Snyder was deeply infatuated with her new lover, 
33-year-old Judd Gray. The affair made her all the more eager to be free of her dreary husband, 43-year-old Albert Snyder. After she secured a large insurance policy on her husband's life, she had all the more reason to look forward to his demise. In fact, she seemed ready to engineer his death herself. According to Albert's family, Ruth's first attempt on her husband's life occurred in July of 1926. On a warm summer day, Albert was taking a nap in the living room. Granny Brown was out with Lorraine and Ruth left the house to run errands. Not long after she went out, Albert woke up feeling sick and gagging. The house was filled with gas fumes. He stumbled outside, gasping for fresh air. When Ruth returned to find him in the garden, she acted horrified. She claimed that as she passed the living room heater, she accidentally kicked the gas tube free of the living room wall on her way out the door. But it didn't seem like an accident. Albert's sister said that later, they tried to kick the gas tube free of the wall and couldn't do it. They thought Ruth must have yanked it out on purpose. By some accounts, Ruth also made several attempts to poison Albert by putting bichloride of mercury tablets in his drinks, telling him they would cure his chronic hiccups. The pills didn't kill Albert, they only made him vomit. But since his hiccups did in fact go away, he apparently didn't question his wife's treatment. When poison didn't work, Ruth reportedly tried to gas Albert again in early 1927. She once more used the excuse that she had kicked the gas tube as she was leaving the house. She came home, yet again, to find him gasping in the street, complaining that he had almost asphyxiated. Later, at a party with his family members, Albert made an offhand remark about how close his wife had come to widowhood. However, he appeared to be joking. For whatever reason, it didn't occur to him that his wife might actually be trying to kill him. Perhaps because they were ordinary middle-class people living an ordinary middle-class life. In Albert's mundane world, wives complained about their husbands. In rare cases, they might even divorce them, but they didn't kill them. Though the idea might seem absurd, According to evolutionary psychologist David Buss, almost anyone can be capable of murder. Dr. Buss has said that murder fantasies are incredibly common. In a study of 5,000 individuals, he found that 84% of women and 91% of men had at least one clear fantasy about committing murder. Dr. Buss stated, Though we may like to think that murderers are either pathological misfits or hardened criminals, the vast majority of murders are committed by people who, until the day they kill, seem perfectly normal. Perfectly normal, just like Ruth Snyder. But she was serious about killing her husband, and she would not be deterred. When Ruth couldn't engineer Albert's death on her own, she turned to Judd for help. Sometime in February, they met for a date at the Waldorf Astoria. They drank heavily and Ruth lamented the state of her marriage, 
crying to Judd about everything that had gone wrong. She told Judd her arguments with Albert were worse than ever before, even saying that whenever Albert lost his temper, he threatened to kill her. She was also losing too much money every month paying her husband's insurance premiums. At some point, Albert was sure to find out, and he'd be furious. Ruth felt she was running out of time to get rid of her husband. She was desperate for Judd's advice. At some point that night, they formulated a plan. They decided Ruth would render Albert unconscious first, giving Judd the chance to sneak in the house and kill him. On March 4, 1927, Judd Gray went to a hardware store and purchased a window sash weight, an 18-inch steel bar about the size of a rolling pin, weighing about 5 pounds. He also purchased chloroform and some cotton rags. Judd later said they planned to execute the murder that evening, but when he arrived at the Snyder house, he and Ruth got cold feet and cried like babies. Full of nerves, Ruth told Judd to go on home. But within a few weeks, another opportunity came. Ruth wrote to Judd and told him that she and Albert were going to a party on Saturday, March 19th. They were going to bring their daughter, nine-year-old Lorraine, with them. While they were away, the house would be empty because Ruth's mother planned to be away on a nursing job. It would be easy for Judd to sneak into the house and wait for Ruth and Albert's return. Ruth expected that after the party, Albert would be drunk and vulnerable. It would be the perfect moment to pull off the crime. Judd agreed and went to work setting up an alibi. On Friday afternoon, Judd Gray took a train to Syracuse in upstate New York. That evening, he checked into the hotel on Indaga and spent the night there. The following morning, on Saturday, March 19th, he spoke to clients over the phone. On Saturday afternoon, he had lunch with a friend and asked for a favor. He said that he had plans to meet up with a girlfriend in Albany. He didn't want his wife or employer to find out, so he asked his friend to go to his hotel room, post a few letters, mess up the bed so that it looked slept in, and place a do not disturb sign on the hotel room door. That way, nobody would guess that he'd ever left Syracuse. The friend didn't mind lending a hand. With his cooperation, Judd felt certain that he had an airtight alibi. By every appearance, Judd remained at the Onondaga Hotel for the entire night. In reality, Judd Gray spent that Saturday evening on a train, riding back to New York City. Ruth Snyder was ready for his return. As planned, the Snyder family went out Saturday night to a neighbor's bridge party. Other attendees later recalled that Ruth acted very affectionately toward her husband that night. Albert found it strange, even commenting that she didn't treat him that well at home. Neighbors also remembered that Ruth refused to drink much that night. She said she felt sick, and told the host to give her share of the drinks to Albert. Albert seemed ready and willing to overindulge. 
around midnight, while Albert, Ruth, and Lorraine were still at the party, Judd arrived at the Snyder house. Ruth had left the door unlocked for him and he crept inside. Judd climbed the stairs to Granny Brown's room. He went inside, where he found a bottle of whiskey lying on the bed. He began to drink it. It helped him pass the time as he waited for the Snyder's return. Around two o'clock in the morning, the Snyders left the party and made their way back home. Ruth tried to keep her breathing steady as they approached the house. She was already worried her husband suspected something. If she could just get through the next few hours, everything would be all right. When she got inside, Ruth's voice trembled as she told Lorraine to hurry to bed. She helped the girl into her pajamas, hoping her daughter was too tired to notice how her hands were shaking. According to the plan, Judd should already be inside the house. Ruth knew he must be waiting in the room next door, probably feeling as nervous as she was, unless something had gone wrong. Perhaps he had gotten cold feet again. Perhaps he was still upstate. She shook those thoughts out of her mind and left her daughter's room. She paused in front of Granny Brown's room, making sure the hallway was clear before opening the door. So far, she was safe. She heard her husband in the master bedroom getting undressed, oblivious. She poked her head into Granny Brown's room, and there was Judd, waiting for her like a loyal dog. Ruth gave him a quick, nervous smile. Down the hall, she heard Albert settling into bed. He didn't suspect a thing. Ruth was suddenly flooded with an overpowering certainty. It was either going to happen tonight or never. It was time to make a decision. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Ruth Snyder's story. We'll see the aftermath of Ruth and Judd's plot and the media circus that followed. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies with writing assistance by Drew Cole. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>